Hey, this is Josh Levine, the host of One Year. I hope you're enjoying our season on 1986. This week, I'm going to turn things over to my Slate colleague, Joel Anderson. In 1985, Reverend Michael Freeman left his small Methodist church for a new assignment three hours away. He was moving to a town in the Mississippi Delta. Reverend Freeman assumed it was poor and desolate, like much of Mississippi, but Indianola took him by surprise. I mean, I didn't expect what I experienced. The lady who drove the Jaguar was down the street from me. (laughs) This was an integrated neighborhood then, right? No, this was a black neighborhood. Not everybody was driving a Jag, but in his new neighborhood, Reverend Freeman was surrounded by people who expected to send their kids to college. And that's what Indianola was growing to become. The town itself, you know, I thought it was a nice place to stay and live. Indianola is a town of 8,000, 30 miles east of the Mississippi River, about halfway between Memphis and Jackson. A stream that's lined with cypress trees runs through the center of town. It's called the Indian Bayou. That's where Indianola gets its name. When Reverend Freeman got to town, everyone was getting ready for a celebration, the 100th anniversary of Indianola's founding. Oh, everybody's talking about it. I mean, everybody's excited to see B.B. King. B.B. King was born on a plantation 20 miles away, but he always called Indianola home. In the summer of 1986, the legendary blues guitarist was going to take a break from his world tour to headline the big centennial party. On the surface, everything seemed pretty good, full of promise and possibility. But then, Reverend Freeman started talking to some local teachers at his church. And they would explain that schools are not getting all the the books that they need on time. They are not getting new uniforms. So I asked why. I mean, why are you not getting them? Based on what he was hearing, This wasn't just a matter of underfunding. There were rumors that resources that were supposed to go to the public schools just never got there. I I, I just remember people telling me how black principals was asked to sign off on invoices for materials that never showed up in black schools. David Jackson had a child in the public school system. We had purchased computers years before we ever got a computer, you know. It was what it was. So where was all this stuff going? Maybe I shouldn't say this because we never was able to prove it. Let me say, it was believed. (laughs) A lot of the resources for the the public schools in Illinois uh, went to the academy. The academy was Indianola Academy, a private school. That's where almost all of the white students in town went, from kindergarten through 12th grade. The public school system was almost entirely black. For Reverend Freeman, all of this was really troubling. Like David Jackson, he had kids in the Indianola public schools. I said, well, who's in charge of the public school? And then they would tell me, and I said, that's not right. The people who ran the public schools, they were almost all white. That was a story all over Indianola. The town was about 60% black, But white men held the positions of mayor, police chief, and fire chief. 
all of them was at the same table. Let me say, let me put it that way. They played golf together. They went to the club meeting together, whatever. The majority of black population that was participating in the system was not in charge of the system. The white power structure had, uh, I guess, implemented the um, plantation system in a lot of ways. When David Jackson and Reverend Freeman looked at the public school administration, they saw a group that didn't look like them or represent their interest. People who really didn't have a vested interest in educating black kids, controlling the educational system. Now that's a fact. Without the ability of having a black superintendent and a majority black board, there was no control. Indianola wasn't so different from a lot of other places. In 1986, all over America, many of the promises of the civil rights era still felt unfulfilled. But what was different about Indianola was what the community did about it. A small town in the Mississippi Delta has become the focus of a bitter battle. The old guard does not want to relinquish any of the power that they've held. They're gnawing and clawing and trying to hold on to every little bit they have. A whole lot of people were fed up with how things worked in Indianola. So they took dramatic action, using tactics borrowed from the past. People all over America had their eyes on Mississippi. They wanted to know one thing. Who would win the battle for Indianola? It ain't gonna do you no good. Somebody's gonna have to suffer. We ain't never had nothing to win. I hadn't been there long. And, and now all of a sudden, I'm in the midst of a community uprising. I think that old saying, it was a straw that broke the camel's back. That was the straw. This is one year, 1986, a boycott in Mississippi. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Separate and unequal schooling was supposedly abolished in America three decades before 1986, but a group from Indianola made sure that didn't happen. If you want to know how integration has been held outside Mississippi for this long, you must first call on the Citizens Council, an organization dedicated to states' rights and racial integrity. Support comes from Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and 85,000 living white citizens of Mississippi. 
The first Citizens Council, sometimes known as the White Citizens Council, was founded in July 1954. That was just two months after the Supreme Court ordered schools to desegregate and Brown v. Board of Education. Why, why should the uh, Negro feel any more discriminated against than the white man for associating with his own kind? Uh, white people who are segregated don't seem to resent it. What they were mostly known for was using sort of economic, I think terrorism is a fair term for it. J. Todd Moy is the author of Let the People Decide, a book about the civil rights movement in Indianola and elsewhere in Sunflower County, Mississippi. They would have the town banker call in mortgages. They would have employers threaten to fire employees so that if African-Americans exercised their civil rights, they lost their job, they lost their home, they lost their livelihood. The Citizens Councils expanded in size and influence all over the South. Some people call it the white collar Klan. So it's probably the most effective pro-segregation organization that, that's created in this period. That comes out of Sunflower County, correct? Yeah, the first meeting was held in Indianola. Indianola wasn't just at the vanguard of American white supremacy. It was also a center of civil rights resistance. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Fannie Lou Hamer was raised in Sunflower County and worked on cotton plantations there. In the early 60s, she risked her life to register to vote and to get her neighbors registered. We are not fighting against these people because we hate them. But we are fighting these people because we love them and we are the only thing can save them now. And I believe tonight that one day in Mississippi, if I have to die for this, we shall overcome. Black children in Sunflower County grew up amid these civil rights battles. When the promises of Brown v. Board went unfulfilled, they were the ones who suffered. We had a five-room school out here in the country. It didn't have running water, it didn't have inside plumbing at all. David Jackson grew up north of Indianola in the 1960s. As a kid, he helped his parents pick cotton in the fields. I still live on the road that I was born on. When I said born on, that's exactly right. Midwife delivered me right down the road on Charlie Ellis Plantation, and I live on Charlie Ellis Road right now. When David's country school eventually shut down, he was supposed to go to an all-white school nearby. And it keeps from bringing all of these little black kids from the country to the white school. They just closed it down. Instead, David was bused to an all-black school. Like other segregated schools in the area, it was underfunded and poorly maintained. It was even written up for having no fire extinguishers. Separate but equal, they call it, I think, but uh, we, we know better. In 1970, 16 years after the ruling in Brown v. Board, it looked like things were finally about to change. That January, a federal judge told Indianola that segregation was over, for real this time. They finally said, enough, stop coming up with these piecemeal measures. Stop dragging your feet. You have to integrate your schools. The judge said that white kids and black kids in Indianola would have to go to school together right away. But that's not what happened. When that decision came down, white parents just in droves left the public schools almost with the flick of a switch. Indianola's white leaders had been preparing for forced integration. As soon as that federal ruling went into effect, 
they put their plan into motion. In Indianola, the way they remembered it was the court decision came down on a Friday, and on Monday, all of the white kids went to Indianola Academy. It was slightly more complicated than that, but that's essentially what happened. So many students left that the white public high school shut down. In an instant, the composition of Indianola's public schools had totally changed, but the people who controlled those schools stayed exactly the same. The vast, vast majority of public school students were African-Americans. The majority of teachers and employees were African-Americans, but the leadership was all white. The superintendent of the Indianola School District, D.B. Floyd, had taken over three years before the federal court order. And the school board, which was predominantly white, helped convince him to stay by maybe increasing his salary. And they did that over the years. That's Jim Abbott. He was the editor of the local newspaper, the Enterprise Toxin. They wanted their man to be there that would maybe not push so much for expensive improvements of the public school system. Dr. Floyd stayed in office all through the 1970s and into the 80s. During those years, the public schools got so overcrowded that they risked losing their accreditation. But the school board did nothing to fix the problem. Then there were those rumors that Reverend Michael Freeman heard about money and equipment getting diverted to Indianola Academy. If you got a budget and the public school system is not getting the resources, where did you spend the money? They were investing in the school system, but it just wasn't the public school system. It seemed like it was going to stay that way. But in 1985, Jim Abbott's newspaper got a big scoop. The superintendent had been given a secret raise, even as he fought to prevent Indianola's teachers from getting salary increases. I think it so embarrassed him. And so he pretty much immediately announced that he was going to retire. And so that set into motion a search for his replacement. The school system affected all our families. So I want to see some changes made. <laughs> Reverend Freeman understood right away that the open superintendent position was a huge opportunity, a chance to change how the system worked. Well, it's simple. Whoever controls the superintendent spot controls the money. If you're in charge of the money, you can direct it in uh, another direction. For a lot of people, there was an obvious choice to fill the superintendent role. Robert Merritt. Robert Merritt. Dr. Robert Merritt. Yes, uh, my name is Robert uh, L. Merritt. Uh, I want to tell you what my philosophy mm -hmm. is. Things don't just happen. You must make them happen. The only place you will find success coming before work is in the dictionary. This is from a 1991 interview with Dr. Robert L. Merritt. Dr. Merritt had a bachelor's degree in elementary education and a Ph.D. in education administration. He'd been a fixture in the town schools for 26 years, helping to mold generations of Indianolans. I was a class clown, you know, and one of the teachers sent me to his office and I was petrified. Otha Campbell grew up in Indianola. Robert Merritt was his principal. He let me wait and he let me sweat. And he finally came in and he sat down and he just began to talk. Wow. He began to talk to me about young men that 
were making a very significant contribution in the world. Dr. Merritt inspired Otha with the story of a pastor who'd made himself a pillar of his community. He told Otha that he had that potential too, so long as he applied himself. The tactfulness that he used as an educator and as a father figure, that conversation will be forever etched in my psyche. I just thought he was just one of those persons that made you feel good to be around as a man. Reverend Freeman threw his support behind Dr. Merritt, and he wasn't the only one. The school board received more than a thousand letters and signatures promoting his candidacy. The Mississippi School Boards Association was impressed too. They told the Indianola board that Robert Merritt should be their top candidate. Hiring him would be a historic move. This was the first time that they would have had a black superintendent. How much did it matter that Dr. Merritt was black? Just a black person would not have been a good person to put in that place. But a black person with his credential and his family life, that changes everything. Because then the teachers, the, everybody in that system looks up to him. Now, it was up to the nearly all-white Indianola school board. The chairman was one of the town's most powerful people, a banker and church deacon named Odell Godwin. He was smart. He was well-read. He had an extensive vocabulary. Newspaper editor Jim Abbott. Sometimes when he would come into our office, he would, he might not say the N-word, but he would say words like monkeys and things like that that would just really kind of shocking for somebody. I thought of his statue, but that was his personality. In October 1985, the school board met secretly at Godwin's home on an old plantation, and they invited a white man from a different Mississippi school district to join them. That day, they essentially offered that man the superintendent job. They hadn't even interviewed Dr. Merritt. The word got out that they had done this, and when it was finally announced, the superintendent crisis began. We, we don't know anything about the other guy. <laughs> I just call him the other guy right now. <laughs> the other guy is not in the community. The other guy is coming in and going to be in charge of something that he knows nothing about. You, you want the best for your kids, you want the best for your family, and, and all of a sudden now it's a possibility this could be taken away from you. So what are you going to do? What the black community was about to do would change Indianola forever. We'll be back in a minute. When news got out about the school board's secret meeting, the Black community in Indianola was furious. It was clearly a sneaky attempt to stop a qualified Black candidate, Robert Merritt, from becoming the superintendent. We said, no, we're not going to allow this to happen. And we talk about what pressure we can put on the community. 
All of the people who'd supported Dr. Merritt made their outrage known. When the outsider white candidate heard there was a backlash brewing, he withdrew his application. The board could have hired Dr. Merritt right then. Instead, they started the search process all over again. This time, Indianola's Black residents were determined not to leave it to chance. In the birthplace of the White Citizens Council, they formed their own organization, the Concerned Citizens. Concerned Citizens is a one-issue civil rights group. Historian Todd Moy. It's able to bring together basically the entire African-American community in Indianola around this issue of fairness in hiring and fairness of treatment of African-Americans in the Indianola schools. Concerned citizens wanted Robert Merritt to get the superintendent job, but they also had another goal, ousting the chairman of the school board, Odell Godwin. Godwin had hosted that secret meeting at his plantation home. Beating him would be a huge symbolic victory. It would also give Dr. Merritt's supporters another seat on the school board. So they asked me, the committee asked me, would I be interested in uh, running? I said, I hadn't thought about it. David Jackson had started out going to that country school with no running water. Now, he was a 29-year-old college graduate and a married father of two. He worked in affordable housing and knew people all over town. David decided he was willing to run for office, although his mother wasn't sure it was a good idea. Like, okay, you're going against the establishment. These folks been running the school district for ever since they've been a school district. And you're trying to take out the chair that's been there for probably 20-some years. You don't know what they're going to do. Odell Godwin had never faced a challenger before. As far as anyone could remember, it was the first time any school board member had been in a contested election. The concerned citizens knew waging an open war against Godwin would be risky. So David Jackson's campaign unfolded quietly, in living rooms rather than public events. I used to love to do Sunday evenings when people would be at home and uh, I had time to sit down and chat a little bit. And I would say, why not have representation that would fairly represent your interests in the school district? You know you're not getting it now. Nobody ever comes and asks you what you want. What do you think is best for your kids? Based on history, he should have been an underdog in the race but he couldn't help but feel like the favorite. I knew that the only way that we could lose the election is that Black people didn't come out to vote. That's the only way we could lose it. Black people did come out to vote. Jackson won by an almost two to one margin. We really showed up. <laughs> it was overwhelming and, and, and uh, it was great. It was great and it, it, it felt great. Concerned citizens had toppled the school board's most powerful member and replaced him with one of their own. While the board was still majority white, David Jackson would now get to vote on the new superintendent. The board had narrowed its list to two candidates. Once again, one of them was Dr. Merritt. The second person on the list was Willie Grissom of a smaller school district, but not school district, but he was white. Willie Grissom had lived in Indianola for the past 11 years, and he'd served as the principal of a local elementary school. But he still didn't stack up to Robert Merritt. I'm going like, okay, this was a slam dunk then. Robert Merritt was a man of conviction. He was going to be fair, he's going to be honest, that's the way he is. But when it was time for a decision, 
David's fellow board members went the other way. Nobody came out and said, no, we don't want that Negro. You know, it, it, didn't, it didn't come out like that. <laughs> it, it came out that, you know, we don't think he's the best person for it. I don't even know what they felt because it was crazy. It wasn't about education at all. On March 24th, 1986, the board announced that Willie Grissom would be Indianola's new superintendent. The vote broke along racial lines, with the white candidate getting the support of the three white board members. And that's when, uh, pardon my expression, all, uh, my daddy would say, all hicks broke loose. I don't like to say the other word. <laughs> that same evening, the concerned citizens called an emergency meeting at St. Benedict the Moor, a Catholic church that had been a hub of civil rights activism in the 1960s. More than 700 people showed up. You're trying to keep the house from exploding. Cause people are angry, people ready to go. The community was outraged. Dr. Merritt's former student, Otha Campbell, was working as a substitute teacher at the time. You're gonna put somebody in who we don't know, who don't know us, who, who doesn't eat with us, who doesn't conversate with us? No, <laughs> no. Very quickly, the conversation shifted from outrage to action. And we go, we ain't done yet. <laughs> we are discussing how to get the majority structure to change their mind. The courts hadn't been enough to change the system. Neither had voting. But when everything else failed, there had always been one tactic that civil rights activists knew they could call on. If we could just get about 50 or 60 percent of the Negroes of Montgomery not to ride buses, this would be an effective boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott of the mid-1950s didn't just get attention. Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. got results. The 11-month-old protest against the city buses will be called off and the Negro citizens of Montgomery, Alabama will return to the buses on a non-segregated basis. When an injustice has occurred, you got to put pressure on the majority of the community to respond. And they taught us how to do that. In 1986, Reverend Michael Freeman and the concerned citizens decided they had no choice but to dust off an old strategy. They were going to boycott Indianola's white-owned businesses. We, we have tried our very best to reason with you, but the only thing you're going to understand is economic pressure. So here it comes. The concerned citizens hit the streets at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday, March 26, 1986. That morning, Hundreds of Indianolans gathered outside the school district headquarters and in the shopping district downtown. I'm out here picking for my rights, for the children's rights. I may not live to get it, but the children will come out. They carried signs that said, don't cause this town to blow up. And down with the 1950s, this is the 1980s. See this sign? Tired of being sidestepped. Don't oh, act like I'm, I'm a person too, you know? When the boycott started, I, I saw a coming together in Indianola that I'd never seen before. I, I saw a camaraderie 
This is important to our society, community, and to our schools. Dr. Grissom, which is white, we don't need him. It was wrong for them to just go and hire him like this. It was very strategic. It wasn't something that you just go jump and do. The boycott extended to gas stations, convenience stores, restaurants, and clothing shops. The only businesses that weren't targeted were ones Black residents considered essential. Banks, pharmacies, and the Piggly Wiggly grocery store. The business boycott was just one part of the protest. The concerned citizens also organized a walkout in the Indianola public schools. For the second straight day, classrooms in the public schools, which are 93% black, were almost empty as students took to the streets to protest the appointment of a white school superintendent by the local school board. Some of the teachers said nobody showed up. No students showed up for that class. So when you get that, you know the results, you know. Uh, it's working. It's working. The Indianola School Board was shocked by the widespread solidarity. They worried they were going to lose attendance-based funding from the state. So they called off classes for the entire week. And it wasn't just the school board that was starting to panic. The downtown area, they started hurting first, real bad. Not only did the black customers stay away, but the white customers stayed away too. That's Leanne Silverblatt. She had two kids at the private Indianola Academy, where her mother taught Latin. Her parents also owned a business downtown. Leanne co-owned a clothing store on the outskirts of Indianola. They didn't want to come and have to deal with somebody hollering at them, don't go in there and don't shop or whatever. They were afraid if they did come in and, and defy the picket lines, that there would be repercussions against them later or against someone in their family. It must have been that you knew a lot of the picketers, right? Some of them, yeah. Some of them we did. It really hurt my parents' feelings, and I can't say that I blamed them. One day they looked out, and one of the ones doing all the shouting, don't shop here, and the picketing in front of them was somebody that owed them a bunch of money that they had been so nice to, to extend credit to. And there she was out there, don't go in here to shop and all that. For business owners like Leanne Silverblatt, the timing couldn't have been worse. Easter Sunday was on March 30th, five days into the boycott. So it, it was pretty devastating because you're sitting there with all these Easter dresses and Easter outfits and nobody's coming in to buy them. And that's what an economic boycott does. It shut off resources. It shut off money. You'll see your cash register not ringing. And that will get your attention. The boycott also took a toll on Indianola's Black community. Parents had to scramble for childcare with the schools out of session. And workers missed paychecks as their white bosses lost money. People could lose their jobs. And then you got, when you lose your job, you got house payment. You got all kind of bills to pay. And we are willing to take those chances. As the boycott stretched into a second week, Black Indianolans showed no signs of relenting. As far as the merchant boycott, it will continue, continue, and continue. At an organizing meeting on April 8th, they urged each other to stay strong. If we can use a black man for the 100 year of Indianola, Mississippi, Mr. B.B. King, why can't we have a black man for superintendent, Dr. Mayor? We're going to get Dr. Mayor. I would care to put padlocks on the school office. We're going to get him. 
One person who didn't speak at that organizing meeting was Robert Merritt himself. He didn't appear at any rallies or march on any picket lines. Instead, he just continued to go to work. I think part of their tactic was, you know, let his record speak for itself. The newspaper editor, Jim Abbott. You know, he's got his PhD. He's been a successful principal here for so many years. And the decision should be on that. While Dr. Merritt stayed silent, the concerned citizens expanded their protest. In April, they sent picketers to the town's major intersection at Highway 82 and 49. The public could see it. It's a major highway, so anybody would drive through that major highway but didn't want to stop because they could see that we were boycotting that town. So they would keep driving. And that's a lot of dollars. In white Indianola, tempers were starting to run high. My wife, Cynthia, and I were sitting in our car in the Sonic drive-in, waiting on our hamburger order. And we had our windows down, and we heard a bunch of yelling. The yelling that Jim Abbott heard was coming from Highway 82, where black high schoolers were standing silently with protest signs. And uh, right at that time, uh, a carload of white students drove by and were yelling at them, curse words, the N-word, and the picketers yelled back. And we immediately canceled our food order, raced down to the concerned citizens' headquarters, and told them what we had just observed, because it was a, a potential powder keg. Within the hour, Concerned citizens banned high school students from protesting along the highway. The organizers had no choice. If anyone lost their cool, it could discredit the entire movement. Do not, do not provoke anyone. When you're in a movement, people gonna say stuff to try to rile you up. They're gonna use some racial slurs, but you have to wave at them and smile and keep going. People can read your sign. You don't have to say anything to them. I'm just glad nothing else happened. We came close a couple times. <laughs> there were threatening phone calls and people driving by the picket lines with guns. One Sunday, someone put Ku Klux Klan literature in mailboxes and on the windshields of cars. But no matter how things escalated, concerned citizens followed the tradition of nonviolence. They also resisted calling in national civil rights leaders like Jesse Jackson. They knew that when organizers came to help in the 1960s, white locals branded them as outside agitators. One response to that was for white people to just dig in their heels and say, why are these outsiders coming in and kicking up dust, causing trouble? Historian Todd Moy. You know, we have good race relations here. Why don't they leave us alone to handle this problem ourselves? So to bring in a, a, a power hitter during that period of time, during that situation, it could have gotten explosive. We had enough power with people right there to get the job done. And we're going to keep on marching until we get what we want. Still, by April 1986, the boycott was a major national story. There is a broad school boycott underway tonight in a small town in the Mississippi Delta. This one recalls some of the civil rights struggles of the 1960s. Reporters from all over the country descended on Indianola, 
Local white residents seize the opportunity to share their perspective with NPR. We love the black people in Indianola. One of the dearest friends that I have in this community is the lady that has been made of our church. We're the closest of friends. I love the black people in Indianola. White business owners told the press that they were at risk of losing everything. You're not going to be able to pay your rent and utilities and employees' uh, salaries. You're just not going to be able to do it. We felt like we were, you know, not at fault, but suffering the consequences. Leanne Silverblatt's clothing store never made up for the losses they suffered that Easter. Her business was hanging on, but just barely. I... I had empathy for the protest. I, I, I had empathy for how they felt. It probably wasn't just that one issue of the superintendent. It was probably a buildup of feeling frustrated that they hadn't been heard. Did you wish that they had tried another tactic? Yes, because I think that it was not a decision by the merchants. It was a decision of the school board. So we did feel like we're being punished for something we really didn't do. But at that time, you know, boycott was the first thing a lot of people thought about. So maybe they couldn't come up with something else to do. I, I don't know. It, it got everybody's attention real quick. So maybe it did do what they wanted it to do. Let's take a quick break. Just as Reverend Michael Freeman had predicted, the pocketbook pressure was working. The longer the economic boycott lasted, the more business leaders felt compelled to bring it to an end. So now the white businessmen, they want to talk. <laughs> they really want to talk now. They reached out to you. Yeah, they reached out to us saying, you know, what can we do? We have one thing you can do. Put Dr. Merritt in as the superintendent of schools. That's non-negotiable. On paper, the only group that could install Dr. Robert Merritt was the same body that had passed him over, the Indianola School Board. They felt like they had made a great mistake. They know they had. The newest person on the board, David Jackson, saw that the white members were starting to regret their decision. But they were trapped. At that point, it wasn't anything that they could really do. Once they got in the water, they were wet. <laughs> Even if the white school board members wanted to change their votes, there was a major complication. The superintendent they just hired, Willie Grissom, had already signed a contract. And Grissom said, no, 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 uh-uh. What you gonna do, fire me? I've left my job already. I've given my resignation where I came from. And you gonna tell me that you changed your mind? No, I'm staying. Grissom's contract ran for three years with an annual salary of $45,000, about $122,000 today. The white board members saying, okay, well, we, we stuck with him. Uh, the community said, no, you stuck with him. We are not stuck with him. We're sure they don't know the down. And they went on with the boycott. I call the board to order. 
confront you today, Dr. Grissom, to consider what you are confronted with. If you do not have the teachers to support you, if you do not have the students to support you, you are fighting a losing battle. By the middle of April, it was clear that the school board wasn't going to resolve anything, but the town's struggling white business owners knew they couldn't leave it at that. There were concerned people that said they did not want this to just totally mess up the economy and whatever in Indianola, and they, we needed to try to work together to find a solution. The Chamber of Commerce organized what it called a biracial committee. It was made up of five blacks and five whites. There were clergymen, including Reverend Friedman. There were also attorneys and business owners. My mother was the president of the Chamber of Commerce that year, and so she became the chairman. Historian Todd Moyes says that at that time, the existence of an interracial group was a big step in itself. In the context of the Mississippi Delta, it's actually a pretty big deal to put together a group of people like this and to give them power to negotiate you know, a social problem on, on behalf of both sides of the community. The biracial committee started getting together at least twice a week, and the white community leaders began to understand why Black Indianolans felt so committed to Robert Merritt. What I do remember is a sense of clarity. Stan Runnels was on the committee. He was the priest at the town's white Episcopal church. It wasn't like, well, we're doing this because we ought to, you know, or we, we got to show some kind of solidarity. There was a real sense of this is just the right thing, and Dr. Merritt is the right person. The biracial committee was in agreement. Robert Merritt needed to get hired. That meant Willie Grissom had to go. So one evening, a delegation of white clergy went to pay Grissom a visit. Sending an all-white group was intentional. They wanted Grissom to feel comfortable. I don't think we had tea and crackers or anything like that, but he kind of calmed down when he saw that we weren't reading the riot act to him. And he kept talking about how he would do a good job, how he cared about the kids. We didn't get a hard no. We just didn't get a hard yes. Grissom knew he was facing an uphill battle. Indianola's board of aldermen called for him to resign. Nine of 10 biracial committee members publicly backed that request. And more than 500 parents signed a letter telling Grissom he wouldn't have their support. It got to the point where Grissom actually realized, even if I stay in this job, I do not have the support of 90% of the parents or more of the school district. Jim Abbott. How can I be a, an effective superintendent of education when I, nobody likes me, you know? But even as his support eroded, Grissom demanded what he was owed. So there was a stalemate. The boycott was now a month old and the concerned citizens were threatening to keep it going all the way through the town's centennial celebration. No one in the business community wanted that. It was becoming clear that there was only one way to bring the protest to an end. So then they just, they went around and collected money from all of us businesses in town to pay off the contract. A group of white business owners will pay Grissom $90,000. Attorney Tommy McWilliams says he is not sure where all the money will come from, but Grissom will be paid. The Delta lawyer also doesn't view the compromise as blackmail. I think most people just said, okay, we don't want to do it, but what else are we going to do? Let's just do it and get this over with. 
You know, most of the people gave over $1,000. The convenience store people may have given 25000 I mean, it was, it was a pretty substantial amount. Do you remember how much you gave? It was more than we could afford to give. I remember that. Willie Grissom resigned as the superintendent of schools on April 30th, 1986. To the members of the press, to the members of citizens of this community. The next day, the Indianola School Board called a press conference to name his replacement. I would like to announce to you this afternoon that the board unanimously selected Dr. Robert Merritt as the superintendent for the Indianola Municipal School District. The concerned citizens had won. The boycott was over. It had been 38 days. Once they announced Dr. Merritt was, was going to be superintendent, we all went to church and celebrated. We're thankful to thee, O oh God, for having looked over us as we watched and marched on picket lines. Help us to look for a greater good in the city of Indianola. Help us to look for a deeper and abiding understanding. The community had achieved a goal that never had been achieved before. It's like going to a football game and you just made a touchdown and you won the Super Bowl. Oh, there was an eruption of praise and adoration, I'll just never forget. <laughs> I'll never forget being there and seeing the enthusiasm, the excitement, the joy that, look, God has blessed us. The mission of the boycott of 86 is complete. It was a hallelujah <laughs> time. The night got even more meaningful when the man of the hour was introduced. At this time, I bring before you the new superintendent of the Indianola Municipal Separate School District, Dr. Robert L. Merritt. Dr. Merritt had mostly stayed silent during the boycott. But now, finally, it was time for him to address his supporters. Ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed a pleasure for me to stand here before you tonight. It is indeed a historical moment yes, to stand before a people that I have loved so long yes. and so well. You have been a bright light. As a matter of fact, You've been such a bright light that the darkness couldn't put it out. Yes, sir. You gave me the tenacity to hold on. Let's move forward to place Indianola on the map as perhaps the best school district in the United States. Thank you. With the boycott over, Indianola could now try to get back to normal, beginning with the centennial celebration starring B.B. King. Woke up this morning, 
after another one of those crazy dreams. I hated the boycott. I hated that we had to spend the money to pay the other guy off. But at the end of the day, it probably turned out the way it was supposed to turn out. Robert Merritt took over as superintendent just after the Centennial Party. He got to work right away. We saw resources coming. There's a whole lot of things just changed with him being in that spot. So he was the man for that time. Dr. Merritt set up PTAs, established a curriculum council staffed by parents and teachers, and secured money to build a new school to finally relieve the overcrowding. He inherited a school district that had so many needs. You know, he accomplished so much program after program. His tenure was so successful that some white parents began to return their children to the public schools. When he retired in 1994, the number of white students in the system had doubled to 14% of enrollment. Today, Robert Merritt is 93 years old, living in his hometown of Aberdeen, Mississippi, with his wife of 68 years. They even named a middle school after him in Indianola. When it's all over and done with, everybody breathes and goes, man, we should have done this in the first place. But not everyone in town believed that the boycott had been worth it. One white resident told the local paper, I hope that no group will ever try to hold Indianola hostage again. At least four businesses closed permanently because of the losses they suffered. The economic impact was estimated at $3 million. That's nearly $8.1 million today. That's the price you pay. And we, we, you can't take blame for that. Uh, that's what happens. It hurts both ways. We both hurt him when we go through this situation. 36 years after the boycott, Indianola is still hurting. The well-off community Reverend Freeman moved to in the mid-1980s has been decimated by white flight and industrial decline. And a lot of the gains that Dr. Merritt made in the school system have been lost. By 2019, the number of black students in the district schools had climbed back to more than 95%. The private school, Indianola Academy, still serves nearly all the white students in town. This is a civil rights victory that is never entirely a victory. Historian Todd Moy. It's one that has to be fought again and again and again. But not everything the concerned citizens fought for has vanished. Today, four of the five school board members serving Indianola are black. So is the superintendent. So we've come a long ways, but we still got a ways to go. When Otha Campbell was in school, his principal, Robert Merritt, told him he had the talent to be a pastor. Now he is for two small Baptist congregations, one of them in his hometown. Otha is Indianola's greatest ambassador. He loves to brag on that small town in the Mississippi Delta, home of the B.B. King Museum and the high school's undefeated 1975 football team. But for him, nothing tops the boycott. It's what he wants the world to know about Indianola. 86 will be forever etched in my mind and in my heart. Fannie Lou Hamer, I could see her smiling from heaven uh, because you know her statement, I'm tired of being sick and tired. And that's what had happened in Indianola. We were tired of being sick and tired. And we did it. We did it. Yeah, we did it.
Joel Anderson is a Slate staff writer. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to one year without any ads, and they get a special behind-the-scenes episode at the end of this season with me and one-year senior producer Evan Chun. If you sign up now, you can get the first three months of your membership for just $15. To get that deal, go to slate.com slash one year plus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash one year plus. Next time on One Year 1986, a cute story about a very hungry sea lion transforms into a full-on ecological crisis, and everyone in Seattle has to choose sides. They would call up and they would just start cussing at you and telling us to leave those sea lions alone, and, and that if you continued harassing them or you did any harm to them, we're gonna start shooting at you guys. Evan Chung is One Year's senior producer. This episode was produced by Joel Anderson, Sam Kim, Derek John, Sophie Summergrad, Madeline Ducharme, Evan Chung, and me, Josh Levine. It was edited by me, Evan Chung, and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1986 at oneyearatslate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Some of the audio you heard in this episode comes from Jim Abbott in the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Special thanks to Verna Ransom of the B.B. King Museum and Delta Interpretive Center, Walter Gregory, Charles Motley, Nervell Ward, Dr. Adrian Brown, Susan Matthews, Christina Cotarucci, Sol Worthen, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1986.